Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Tales from Tolt, and the topic on uh, this week is uh, sawmills. After the uh, logging was really important for a while in the economy of this valley, and of course, those logs all had to be sawed up someplace, and so uh, the lumber industry was very, very important to the local economy here, and we're going to talk a little bit about sawmills today. I've got two guests, a returning guest, uh, Alan Miller, has been with us for the last two episodes where we talked primarily focused on the riverboats that used to come up uh, the Snoqualmie, and then we talked a little bit about the two railroads that came to Duval and Carnation, and he's uh, joining us again today to talk about this uh, subject, and also is a special guest because he's my uncle, my uncle Steve Davidson, my dad's youngest brother. Uh, he has some credentials of being here because uh, Steve is... Uh, Worked as a sawyer in a local sawmill called Davis Sawmill that was just north of Carnation. And then Steve uh, uh, operates Davidson Sawmill with his brother Wayne, uh, which is a small sawmill just outside of Carnation, about two miles south of Carnation. So welcome, Steve. Wow, thanks for having me. You bet. (laughs) And welcome again, Alan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, this is going to be interesting because, you know, like I said, sawmills are pretty important. You see any kind of uh, history of the valley depicted and you're going to see some uh, whole array of mills of all different shapes and sizes. When we talk about little sawmills today, there are some pretty efficient ones. You can find them on the back of uh, catalogs being advertised and you might have seen some in the woods at places. They make these little efficient sawmills now that you basically can fold up and take down the road like a trailer, like a carnival ride or something like that. They're just highly efficient little rough cut mills. But these sawmills were a little bit bigger in size, not the size of like Warehouser or some of the other really large mills. But there were a lot of important stationary sawmills all throughout the valley. Uh, One of them was um, Davis Mill. It was, boy, how long was that in existence, uh, Steve? Well, he started out. Back in the late 40s, and they had around a circle mill out in Benson. Then they shut that mill down in 1953 or so, and then they built the bandsaw mill that was just south of uh, or north of Carnation there where the old Davis Mill site is. And and then uh, that mill ran up to about 1974 and then sold out to Chase Morris and Bill Carmichael, and became Carmore Incorporated. And then they ran for a couple of years after that. I left there in July of 75 and went to work for Warehouser. So you, you, you mentioned Warehouser. Warehouser obviously was a big Goliath uh, here uh, that owned mills. Why were all these sawmills, why did they exist? I mean, what was who was the primary source of timber and why were they around? Well, they shipped lumber all over the place and they had the, the mill up here and it was kind of a big log mill and kind of, we had 11 foot head rig in there and then they dropped it down to a 10 foot because the logs started getting smaller. But then years ago out there, they cut stuff up to 40 feet long and then they cut it down to 24 foot carriages and stuff. So it was mainly a big log mill. Most of the big logs were gone. So they started 
Um, they were actually making more money, I think, exporting their logs out to China and Japan than they were, you know, with the labor costs and everything here. So they just kind of phased out the older big mills rather than revamping them to new quads or whatever. And obviously, maybe one of the reasons why there is mills scattered all throughout the Suquamish Valley in various different places is transportation, freight, or whatever you want to call the movement of logs, was an expensive endeavor and kind of difficult to do. And so by putting it close to the timber source, these things weren't really intended to be there forever. They were basically put in a place to get the timber all cut up. And then a lot of times they actually shut down or moved. Isn't that correct? Yeah transporting the logs in there and then having to transport the lumber back away, you know, it's uh, be more economical to be cutting a rate where you're selling it, you know. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're kind of a thing of the past. It's like Mill A and Mill B and Everett. They were big log mills too, you know, but they're right close to the water and exporting to, <laughs> you know, kind of a, more of a bigger moneymaker for them than, uh, than the sawmills were. Now, speaking of the Carmore Mills, I had a little experience with them when I worked as an agent at Snoqualmie Falls Depot, because although the Everett line through the valley was basically done running trains on it, the Carmore Mills were still shipping out carloads of lumber off of the team track in Carnation. They'd truck the lumber up there and load it onto cars, and they had the railroad set up that they would come down on Tuesdays and Thursdays to serve the mill. The way it was supposed to work is the mill would order a a flat car through me at the depot, and then I would get the train to run down there on Tuesday and set a car out for them. Then they would have all day Wednesday and Thursday to get the car loaded, banded, and ready to go. And then Thursday night, the local would come down and pick up that car and take it up to Cedar Falls, weigh it, and get it up get it on its destination. But the railroad, I believe, was trying to kill the business off down in the valley here because I'd order a car for Tuesday, and it was just a common flat car, nothing hard for the railroad to come up with. And they would somehow fail to get the car out there on Tuesday. <laughs> so the car would end up going down there on Thursday. They would load the car up. And then over the weekend, somebody would come up and cut the bands and steal about a quarter of the load of lumber off the car. And then our train would come down the following Tuesday to get the car, couldn't move it because the bands had been cut and the load was all oh my. stolen. So then they'd leave a note for me that they couldn't get the car. And then I'd have to get a hold of the guy at the mill and let him know. And they'd have to come back up and replace what had been stolen. And then we finally get the car out of there after all this delay. And so he finally said, the heck would I could truck this stuff <laughs> more reliably than the railroad. There was different type of mills. There was the sawmills, and they were in varying degrees of complexity that they could have planers, they could have kiln dries. Some of them were really rather large. Some of them were smaller endeavors that just would cut rough cut uh, lumber. But there's also other uh, things that are labeled in some of the pictures you see as a sawmill, but they weren't actually a sawmill. They were a shingle or shake mill. Steve, you want to tell them what's a shake mill? Well, uh, Alan might be able to answer that better than me, but most of the shake mills, they, back then they were split shakes. They, uh, every time they'd split it, it'd come off from a different direction and there was a split taper. And then later they started coming out with the band saws and then they would would uh, take the shakes and they'd split them on a band saw and put the taper in them. But the shingle mills, they were all sawn. 
and uh, a shingle, if you lay a shingle out in the, the weather, it'll soak up water. But if you lay a shake out in the weather with the split grain on top, they'll stay dry. You know, so the shakes were more preferable for roofing. And the shingles were more used for siding, and they were easier to put onto the real, you know. Other than that, uh, when I moved to Eastern Washington, I was surprised about how many shingle roofs were over there. And in that in that type of weather that we have in the Tri-Cities, they had to be oiled annually yeah. or they curled something bad. They looked like a bunch of shoes up there after yeah. you had to get up there. And that was a dangerous business because when you oil a roof, yeah, you have to do it in a certain fashion because... Once the roof gets oiled, it also gets slippery. And my my neighbor to the back of me, whose name was also Dwayne, he made, after years of doing his own, uh, he made a mistake and his wife found him uh, on the patio and it hurt him pretty, pretty bad. Talking about the hazards of it, there's some hazards inside the mill too. I can remember, I'm old enough to remember some of these old veterans that came out of these, uh, not veterans, uh, veterans of the industry, they came out of these uh, mills. There was a physical characteristic that was a telltale sign that they worked in one of these mills. You want to describe, either one of you want to describe what that was? Missing fingers. Experience. <laughs> yeah. You saw a lot of guys around here that had missing fingers, and they almost always was caused by that. Yeah. Sometimes farm machinery, but those those mills were notoriously hazardous, were they not? Yeah. A lot of the shingle mills, they had a, like a hula saw, they called it. And when the shingle would come down, rather than pushing it through, you just push down on it and the saw blade would come up from underneath and trim the shingle off. Well, your finger or your hand was in the wrong spot when you push down it just zing your finger right off. So and a lot of the guys feeding shakes through the band saws, they would lose their fingers too, you know, just getting careless and trying to go too fast. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a kind of a famous picture of the O'Neill Gowan shingle mill crew standing out there and they're holding up bundles of shingles with the name of the mill on it. And there's two or three guys here that's only got like one finger on it. <laughs> and then after after working in the mill, about the only other industry that was going on in the valley was dairy farming. And so before milking machines came into place, those guys were really up a creek because yeah. you can't milk cows too good with those fingers. <laughs> they didn't make very good bowlers either. <laughs> Yeah, it's something uh, you don't see much anymore, but that was a common sight in the current, in the uh, Socomi Valley of the old timers that worked in the in the shake and shingle mills, and so that was a uh, that was a common occurrence. Very very hazardous work. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of guys around here that you know that bore the wounds from early sawmills. You know, and people didn't even know a lot became dairy farmer like oh Ernie Backlund. He lost an eye and the mill that Davis had in Vincent. And then uh, Salberg, one of the Salbergs he got hit was Shank. Bob Nelson lost his little finger and big scar above his eye from a shank flying out in Fritch's mill. And there's a lot of hazards in the sawmill. <laughs> <laughs> now, not too many years ago, there was, uh, I had an episode that we talked about uh, with a Jersey Noshi a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about how many dairy farms were in the valley at one time, and now that there's two basically operating today, one in Fall City and one in uh, Duval, not too far from here where we're recording this program. Um, uh, sawmills was a, was another one. Every town had some sawmills. They were all over. The Davidson family, Steve, uh, they operate a small sawmill uh, outside of uh, Carnation. Uh, a couple of days a week, uh, the, enough timber still brought in for them to... Uh, 
have some work to do. Other than that, how many of these type of sawmills that are stationary type of sawmills in place, how many are in operation in the Sonoma Valley? Uh, I think just us are the only ones in a stationary mill. Uh, Pettigene Mill, it was in Fall City, they folded up and there were so many mills around. Dwayne Isaacson, I think on the last register, there was only two mills registered in King County and that was us and Dwayne Isaacson. So it's down to just us, yeah. uh, the Davidson Mill and that one, wow. They're stationary, but there's a lot of the mobile dimension mills, a little portable mills that are out there, but I, I think a lot of them are for just uh, home use and uh, and there's a few of them that cut the uh, live-edged wood for people like them on a pair of surgeries. And they're, uh, they basically cut rough-cut lumber and people use it like where you would use a rough-cut lumber. So this is not the way the lumber yeah. that you get it at Home Depot that's all nicely planed and everything else like yeah. that. It's a rough cut, which means a two-by-four actually measures up two-by-four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ours are full song, but we cut nominal even at Davis Mill when we cut, uh, well, we used to say a target size was 78, uh, 780,000 of an inch. Well, then when it planed down, you know, if you're only taking off of an eighth of an inch on each side and try to get down to one and three quarter inch or uh, three quarters of an inch lumber, you know, but now that the, uh, you go buy the one inch board and it's only a half inch thick. Warehouse, <laughs> <laughs> they kind of did that. We'd send a camp through the sash game because the target site was 780,000. Well, you could say send a 12 inch piece through there and you could end up with 13 boards, <laughs> one inch board. So, wow. Yeah. Well, so hey, we're going to take a break uh, right now, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, how many people that these mills employed and some of the uh, uh, positions that were uh, in these mills and the different, thing, different things they do. So we'll be right back just in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Hi. I'm Seth Shostak, and I'm an actual scientist, although I don't wear a white lab coat. Maybe a straight jacket. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm a science journalist, and we are your hosts on Big Picture Science, bringing you the latest from the labs every week. So join us Thursdays at 6 p.m. for the coolest in science and technology, Big Picture Science. That's Thursdays at 6 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back. We're talking with Steve Davidson and Alan Miller about the uh, sawmills that existed through the Sequoia Valley and how important that they were. Uh, within each sawmill, uh, depending upon the size, there was a number of employees. It all depended upon how much that mill did, if it had a kiln dryer, if it had different things. But almost every mill had at least a sawyer. And then there was a person that worked the off-air, right? Is it? Yeah. And and probably someone just yeah there was a lot more guys ahead of that first you had to like if you're dumping in the pond and you had a brow log down there and the trucks would come in and then you put the cables under the load and they'd go up over uh, uh a log and roll into the pond well then you had to have a scaler scale the logs and then uh usually a pond man and then you a lot of logs were brought in and long lengths of 33 foot. Well, then you bucked them in to try to get the kinks out of the logs. So you had a pond man out there and they run a saw that actually cut right in the water. 
they'd buck the logs and then they'd feed them on down the slip and they'd go down to the guy running the debarker. And then uh, after they came off the debarker, then usually the same pond man would feed the slip as would feed the log into the mill. Oh, right there you got the four guys and then you'll have the sawyer and then uh, after the slabs are cut off, they're handled by the off bear and they're fed either over to the edge or down the line to the trim saws. And uh, then you have a person pulling the edgings after the edgerman. And then uh, the, then they leave the, after the edgings were cleaned out of the lumber, then they go up to the trimmer. And then the trimmer guy, he would trim it and he'd send it out to the green chain. We had two guys at the green chain. So we used to run 12 guys per shift down there. We had two shifts going. Then we had usually two guys down in the planer mill, plus a yard man that would move the stacks when they're full. And you know, Davis employed about, when we were running two shifts, you had about 24 employees. Wow. So there, so yeah. you just think about how many mills there were. Yeah. And all these people, that was a, so yeah, a major a employment. Of, a lot of people, they were a summertime job, you know, when they, uh, when during the summertime, a lot of kids from high school worked there and stuff. And then, uh, then uh, in the wintertime, a lot of guys that had seasonal jobs at construction, construction was down, they'd work down with the mill around the second shift, you know, so it kept guys going all the time. And Steve, you talked about trims, trimmings and stuff off the uh, edge saw and things. Yeah. A lot of that was waste lumber. Uh, Presswood yeah. really wasn't uh, a hot item yet to where they were doing much uh, and yeah. trying to salvage this. And so an awful lot of that wood went into every sawmill I had, which I was always impressed by when I was a kid. These big burners that yeah. were like, they looked like a giant badminton birdie to me. Yeah, they, they, yeah big, huge burners. Yep. And, I, and, and folks, if you might want to check this out, I, I hope I have this right. I think it's a Tacoma Glass Museum in downtown Tacoma, not too far from the University of Washington there at Tacoma, is a, uh, a modern building that was made by the artist to depict that like it was a burner. Yeah. I don't quite see it myself, but that's because I'm not very artistic. If, if, in loose, general terms, I get it. And he clearly, that's what he stated was his intention. And because that was a very frequent site in all of Western Washington, but especially just down here in the Valley, that you had to get rid of all that slash wood that was coming on. Yeah, well, the teepee burners, they were actually fishing. Well, most of them all had forced air blower underneath of them. They had these big cast iron cones that wouldn't melt from the high heat, but you had to get rid of that material before you could start sawing again. It's, otherwise, if the burner filled up and it wasn't burning good, they'd send everybody home. But that was the purpose of putting a debarker in because the pulp companies wouldn't allow you to ship chips that had bark on them. And their top graded chips were hemlocks and uh, hemlock chips and they didn't want any bark particles in there at all, but they'd buy all the chips they had. And, and uh, they'd go down to Tacoma to the pulp mill down there. And then the fir and cedar chips, they would take them down at the Ever Warehouse down there and they had the craft mill down there. And they used to use those chips for making cardboard when they run through the, the digesters down there. But getting a debarker in the mill really saved them. We didn't need to keep. Teepee burners hardly at all after we got the 
the Barker, the Barker, and the Chipper going. And just so uh, uh, listeners may not know, the major reason why most ponds had a, or, or I'm sorry, how why most mills had a mill pond is it helped clean up the logs and make them because the dirty logs or sandy logs or any kind of dirt on there would dull the saws, right? Yeah, and floating them around, one person could go out there and float a whole raft of logs around where it'd take a lot of machinery to move rubber tired machines, you know, forks, and then you're always wallowing in the mud and the ponds were real efficient, you know, for... Now, in a previous episode about dairy farming that I did, uh, uh, that I already mentioned once on this program, uh, we're learning that uh, computers are totally taking over the dairy industry and that uh, right here in Duval, we have a dairy farm that's using a completely robot system to milk his cows. Um, uh, nowadays, these the modern mill is highly efficient in the sense that it can look at a log before it goes through a saw and determine the best cuts to make the most because each log is somewhat of a puzzle and to make the most efficient use of that wood based on the contours of that log a computer can help them figure that out now well we didn't have computers back then and that meant that of all the positions in the mill the Sawyer position was one of the most important for the economic well-being of the mill because that that uh, fellow, and I just say that because most of them were a, a guy in those those days, um, they had to make those decisions right on the fly about they, they got loaded up in the carriage. And before he made the first pass through, he had to determine what the best cuts would be. Isn't that correct? Yeah. If you look for the cracks in the heart, you, you try to look at the grain of the log too. And and some it's like if you were making rare the cross iron stocks for power companies and stuff that was select structural they used to want you to have a minimum of 10 grains per inch and no knots over three-eighths of an inch in diameter but that was a top pay for that wood so that was something you tried to strive to get well if you uh you know, you, it's like cutting railroad ties now. We weren't too particular with those because we'd saw all the good lumber off the side and then we'd end up with a seven by nine or whatever, you know, and, and uh, they didn't care if they had the heart. They'd rather had the heart boxed in them and we'd just send them out, you know, but, but you had to kind of read the log to see what was in it, you know, and, but the timber nowadays is so rapid growth, you know, that, that uh, I don't know, they kind of, with the new machines, they could read them and they kind of cut them by the curve to get rid of the timber buying and stuff. And, you know, and I guess it's been working, but I don't know. I, I go to the lumberyard stuff that's uh, going for uh, like number one and number two would have been almost utility when we were sawing lumber. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and, and what people, uh, we used to call them airplane propellers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You see them dry. It's supposed to be dry cured lumber. <laughs> yeah. And yet it looks like an airplane propeller with a big curve. And some of that comes from improper drying, but some of it comes from yeah. a natural binding in the log that if it isn't cut right, you don't cut that out. Yeah. That can occur. Yeah. 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 And too rapid growing lumber, the, the heart ain't consistent in it travel around you know and the wood is a lot softer you know and, and so it, it's just i don't know it's just something we're gonna have to live with because uh trees don't live very long nowadays before they come down <laughs> so people that worked in the mill 
they uh, uh, most of them that was a that was a career. They uh, they would go from mill to mill, perhaps. Yeah. But many of them worked in the industry for their lifetime. Isn't it correct? Yeah. Yeah. It's like I I uh, haven't. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for us to find parts for our old sawmill because a lot of our stuff, you know, was made. In, 1910 and i got one grinder out there it's an 1890 coho and i have a hard time finding parts for it i gotta make everything you know but, but uh it's kind of uh the hair is kind of changing on it you know it's everybody's going to computers just so i don't end up like the new cars huh? <laughs> <laughs> no computer chips and and you talked about the superior price it was paid for you know the cross arms on on uh, oh yeah on uh, power lines that was highly important because as you can figure if you had a, if it would break yeah. you'd have a live line on the wire now we're bearing tra uh, power lines practically everywhere there's a fewer yeah. and fewer transmission uh, overhead transmitted uh power lines anymore and uh, we've got Alan here, who's a railroad expert. He can attest that uh, there are fewer and fewer timber ties being used in railroads yeah. all the time. And now they're using concrete ties in very many places. Yeah, pretty much concrete ties. They found that uh, they they have to have wood ties on the curves. Concrete is too. The rail has to have a little flex in it. They're, oh, they're, is that why they pulled so many out going up? I think so, because the concrete was too rigid and the, yeah. the, the railroad has to flex a little bit to compensate on curves and they were having derailments from from curves that had solid uh, retired. So. Well, seeing what would happen, I guess it, it's coming down now, but what timber prices were just a oh, couple months ago, yeah. I can't imagine what kind of expense that would be to the railroad of those yeah. ties. That was, that, that's a, there's a lot of wood in a mile of railroad track. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And back then they put you know, what were the little mills that were up there off of uh up on the pass? They used to just cut ties for the railroad trestles. Oh um, they were up on uh, Lake Tetris up there. Were they owned by the railroad? No, I think they were independent mills, but they they, they, so had, uh, they had access to the type of timber that they could make ties out of. They used the uh, Got stuff for the tunnel up there too, I think, when they were tunneling in there. Because a lot of timbers, if you've seen old westerns and stuff in yeah. the old gold mines, it's no different to construct it after you dig so while you had to shore that up for caving in with the major timber. We cut we cut ties for the Canadian Pacific Railroad. And then we load them up right up there in uh, in Lucas's loader whole railroad car. But we we're cutting for the Canadian Pacific. Wow. Wow. We cut 12 by 12 dummies for the pipeline in Alaska, too. 12 by 12s. Yeah. And shipped them up for cribbing the pipe. Well, in the old days, they used to cut what they call switch ties, where they'd make a really long tie, but at one yeah. end of it, it'd have a, a flared out round for. Uh, for spiking the uh, switch stand onto yeah. We like them because they took one foot intervals, a railroad tie, rather than all be an eight footer or whatever. They take uh, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, because it's going to get tie. longer as it yeah, and so the track spread. They would take a one foot interval where most stuff you had to sell it to a if a guy come in and demanded a whole bunch of 12 foot lumber and all you have 14 foot logs, <laughs> you like two feet of lumber on it. 
Well, I would imagine that one of the benefits of having so many sawmills that we did in the past is uh, uh, many vendors or many businesses, any type of thing, uh, leads to competition, which normally benefits everybody. I don't see those days returning now that most of the timber stands that are growing yeah. are, uh, like you said, that they're planted for faster growth. Uh, there's still timber coming in, but it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it's not the same dimension as what we've logged in the past. And most of the logs are coming from uh, those resources that are specifically owned by the big timber companies. And so this, um, this what we had going on that was so uh, reliant on independent timber stands yeah. for their supply of timber, probably something we'll never see again. So we'll probably never see sawmills like this ever again. Gee, we wouldn't have any, we couldn't compete on open mark with Simpson lumber because, you know, we, we do custom signs. So if somebody needs an oddball piece cut where a big mill, they won't specialize in it. No, no, they, yeah. And so that's the only thing out here in the valley where you know, I could see it really still growing is doing specialized work for people. And because like you said, the big mills won't do that. No, and no. sometimes in restoration work, uh, when people are restoring like an old barn yeah. or something of that type of thing, they'll run across an old timber that was special cut. Yeah. Uh, a cant, if they call uh, I think that they call a lot of them, that was a special dimension. And to replicate that, you almost have to buy that from someone like a, a small yeah. sawmill. I think there's still a future in it out around here, you know, because a lot of people, they like special custom built timber frame, the big mills. It's like, you're just going to get a run of a muck, whatever they got there, you know, you know, yeah. I think the, the plain lumber used to be a specialty item, and now the, the rough lumber is a specialty item. And <laughs> <laughs> it saves you one step. You don't have to buy a planer. Well, guys, so, I appreciate your time today. This has been really fascinating listening about the history of logging and more specifically, the uh, sawmills that existed in our valley at one time. Once a big thriving industry with uh, lots of employment, which is all basically uh, pretty much disappeared, but it was a very interesting, fascinating time of our uh, valley history. And speaking of valley history, please tune in next week as we continue to explore the Snoqualmie Valley. Thank you, folks.